Ross Ulbricht is serving a double life sentence without parole for all nonviolent charges for creating a website. Please help free this peaceful man. Go to freeross.org and sign and share the petition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dissecting Liberty podcast. Today, we are joined by our first returning guest, the Politocrat. Hello. Good to, ha- good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> good yeah. to have you, man. And today we're going to be talking about the social contract. So, uh, Cotton, if you want to go ahead and get us started with that. Well, there are, uh, from a historical standpoint, there are three main theories Uh that's like the Hobbesian theory, the Lockean theory, and the Rousseauian theory. Uh, and we talked a bit about that in a recent episode uh, on the origins of the state. But we did not get into it nearly as much as we maybe should have. Uh, not necessarily for that episode, but because it is a really interesting topic. And it has a lot of... Uh, it's presence is felt in modern day governance uh very heavily in my opinion for sure Uh, so i thought that this would be a good deep dive talk topic to go into uh which is why we asked the politocrat to come back on so why don't you give us the uh the ins and outs as you understand them for the social contract yeah, so the social contract, um, I'm sure all the listeners know this, of course, but it's essentially the, um, the deal. I don't know if that's the best way to, way to describe it, but sort of like this um, unspoken kind of agreement between the people of like, or the body social and the body politic, essentially. So it's an agreement between them. It's essentially, in short, that um, the body politic will protect the body social, but the body social has to submit before the body politic and allow the body politic, essentially, to um, intervene in their affairs in case like something goes wrong. So, I mean, in theory, it sounds pretty good. But then again, you have the state and you know how they essentially just keep, they keep legislating themselves more and more power. And then it's like a, you get to a point where pretty much arbitrary and illegitimate. So that, that is the one pro, that, that is like the main problem with the social contract because the, the state is the one with all the power in the end. So like what is to stop it? from overstepping what the ethos of the social contract was originally supposed to be. That's a big problem. And uh, that is basically, as I understand it, that's basically why Locke wrote his second treatise. Uh, Because instead of... He thought that the, the point of a government was to protect certain things, certain innate things life, liberty, property, uh, and not to encroach upon other things. Like it, he, he believed it was to give negative freedom rather than positive freedom. But 
in an application, it's almost always used as a uh, positive, positive freedom uh, arm. And that really began with uh, Rawls. Yeah. Back in the so basically, what I see with, with Rawls, um, with him, he almost so he almost combined uh, Rousseau's social contract with Locke's in a sense. So like he had the uh, the, the property rights aspect of Locke, but then uh, he had the um, like the positive. The, or the positive, quote-unquote, liberty of, um, of Rousseau. So, I mean, I do think Rawls's version of the contract is better than Rousseau's, not by much. But, yeah. I, I mean, that, that's pretty much, like, our modern understanding of the social contract, at least how it's kind of practiced in uh, modern liberal democracies, is essentially um, the theory of... Uh, of uh, Rawls, he, uh, I think a uh, theory of justice was the book yeah. that he proposed it. And uh, Robert Nozick, um, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, was written like as a response to um, um, theory of justice, because Rawls essentially thought that the role of the government, the role of the government, is to I don't want to say maximize happiness because he wasn't a utilitarian, but it was essentially to um, facilitate, or to facilitate justice, to distribute justice, to be involved, um, to kind of like uplift people, help them actively, and there's like people will be happier if ultimately the government comes and does that. Whereas then he had Nozick, who he, he I don't he didn't necessarily believe in a social contract, but he kind of did implicitly. Just in sort of like a, he's like, oh, it's going to sort itself out essentially. But his whole thing was like, no, people are going to be happier if they're just left the fuck alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we had like a conversation on our Discord a while ago about uh, Hobbes and his formulation. Mm-hmm. And you said that, uh, like that, I don't, I don't know the exact wording you said. Like you might have said that was like the most understandable or the most true. Well, uh, yeah, just from a realist perspective. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it's definitely like I actually so I don't separate like when I think of it. I mean, I know a lot of people do, but when I think of the social contract, I only see two versions, really. There's the Rousseauian version and the classical liberal version. And... I actually see, I don't see Hobbes and Locke as having two different interpretations of the social contract. I more so see Locke as improving upon Hobbes's. So like Hobbes came up with like the base idea of it. And then Locke is like, okay, let me just refine this and make it a little more like democratic or individualist, essentially. Because, I mean, by today's standpoint, Hobbes can come across as a bit authoritarian but it's also good to remember he was like the first like classical liberal libertarianish guy like i mean these um these ideas like there would there would be no milton free there there'd be no murray rothbard if it weren't for hobbes <laughs> yeah and uh this is kind of a, a side note but leviathan is kind of up there 
with uh, like the King James Bible just for affecting our language. Like it's oh, an yeah. incredibly beautifully written book. It's yeah, it's great. Like that was actually, I believe that was like the first work of political philosophy I ever read. Uh, Leviathan. This must have been back. Oh God, sophomore year of high school, maybe because I remember there was a uh, we had a um, because I went to a private school. It was like formerly a Catholic school, but my freshman year when I was there, it was the year after it transitioned, which was a terrible mistake because they lost so much, they lost so many students and pretty much went bankrupt because of that. But so, um, but so we had these like seminars that we had to take the still left over from like when the school was a Catholic school. So the first one was studying the Bible, um, just like an analysis and going through it. And then the second one was like a comparative religions one. And I remember, so one of the best teachers I ever had, uh, Mr. Brown, um, he just graduated from like, had a math, like a theology masters or something from UVA. He had, he was mid late twenties. And, um, so he took, he took a liking to me. And so we were all watching this documentary on Islam one day because it was part of the curriculum and like everyone hated it. It was just so boring and it just seemed very like, it just seemed like very like biased but like biased in favor of like it's not like i mean it was just it was kind of hilariously condescending i remember but um but so everyone was bored and then after class he pulled me aside and was like hey jacob this is kind of bullshit right and he's like hey how about we just how about we just start doing um uh, let's just do a philosophy class we'll start with uh we'll start with oh god i forgot who we started the pre we started with like the pre like the pre socratic philosophers and classical greece um and then by the time we got to hobbes that's really where it got interesting and that's basically when i really started shaping my like that really started getting me to think about my political views because like i remember at the time i was kind of like Basically, my political views just depended upon, like, the people I was around. So when I was with conservatives, I, like, agreed with them. And when I was around, like, more liberal people, I agreed with them. I guess I was just kind of, like, a liberal by default, but who had, like, a couple conservative ideas. But then, basically, like, the, the first thing I became, like, in terms of... Um, like, I guess uh, the label I would use to describe myself in hindsight, probably like a center left Hobbesian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of, a, I was kind of a, I was kind of a statist, honestly. Like, I mean, at that point, that was basically when I was like, oh yeah, ideal government would be like the galactic empire from Star Wars. And I unironically believed that. <laughs> and that I was think... when I was, yeah, that was when I was for, I mean, I wasn't like, I was skeptical of socialism and I'd always have been. Um, but I, I, I was for a welfare state. I remember. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us had sympathies like that early on. Yeah. Because like, I actually, unlike, I mean, a lot of people have come to where we are. I mean, I've, uh, most, most seem to have come to where we are from the right. Whereas I feel like I'm one of like the people in the minority who came from the left. I think that's definitely true more people because well, I, I think on the right it's the economic you know, stuff it's like yeah. easier to sway them with the economic stuff 
and and then the other thing is just like if you're a GOP right uh and then you know you're you're all about preserving the constitution and small government eventually well, they say that, at least that, that's what they said that they say that but yeah well well that's the thing like i i think the people that genuinely believe that but they're like GOP type republicans either eventually wise up and think oh the republicans aren't actually doing this you know there must be another way or there's a massive amount of cognitive dissonance going on. I feel like honestly, okay, so I'm I'm just going to outright say this, but I have never been more disappointed in a politician in my life than I am with Rand Paul. Yeah. I I'm, I'm just saying like he was his first term as senator, he was really good like defending whistleblowers, um good on civil liberties against the drone strikes. And um, even teamed up. He was even like had a bromance with Cory Booker. <laughs> they like did like a lot of they did like prison reform stuff together and uh, legal tried to legalize marijuana. Just just all that like civil liberties related stuff. Ending I think trying to like stuff having to do with like the war in Afghanistan, reducing troops. Of course, it, their efforts did not pan out because you know we all know how that is, but. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just think with the, I think that the, um, I think that the, the, the GOP in a lot of ways has finally fulfilled itself. And this is like the last, and basically the Trump movement or what, because the Trump movement is going to still be around after Trump. But I think that that is going to be like the final congealed expression of the GOP before it dies. Yeah. And then, I mean, something similar is going on with the Democrats right oh, now. Oh yeah. No. Because... Okay, so, like, so I actually have like, an, I always had this like idea for an evil plan, how to infiltrate the democratic party and turn it, turn it back into like a Grover Cleveland style democratic party. Basically. So you have like the, the, the far left and the, the corporate quote unquote centrists right now. Um, basically locked in a civil war. And so basically, like, I just think, like, you should get a lot of, like, so, like, civil libertarian centrists, um, like, old school liberals, like, blue dog people, like, classical liberals, some, like, libertarians, just sort of make a coalition and then all team up and then just, like, zerg rush the Democratic Party. And co-opt it from the establishment. <laughs> I don't know. I don't see that uh, happening. Though there is, I mean, there actually, believe it or not, there's a Democratic Liberty Caucus or Freedom Caucus or something. Wow. I mean, it's yeah. No, I mean, it's like a, and apparently they had like people in local offices and stuff, but it's not very popular now. But but there was, but there was the current governor of Colorado. Was when he he was or he just got elected like I think a year or two ago, uh, when he was in the House he was like the sole Democrat who was part of the Liberty Caucus with Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Ron Paul back in uh, 2012. Well, uh, I have a question and yeah, to, we're kind of going off. Yeah, to get us back on to get <laughs> yeah. us back on topic here. Uh, can you describe how Hobbes describes the state of nature in his book The Leviathan? So Hobbes described the state of nature as inherently violent. 
and that so he kind of took a Machiavellian approach in a sense because I mean yeah like in terms of like a lot of the ideas of modern political philosophy that goes back even farther um, past Hobbes back to Machiavelli and even to Aquinas but um, but yeah so he took a very kind of a realist approach and it was essentially like in in nature uh, the, the the like the the physically strong are always going to triumph over the weak. Hierarchy is inevitable. You see it everywhere. I mean, which is true. Hierarchy is inevitable, whether you like it or not. Um, you see it even in the games of children. But so, um, so Hobbes was basically like, in order to maintain social order, what needs to happen is there needs to be a strong central force that essentially has the uh the capacity or the infrastructure to be able to keep people from killing each other essentially and ultimately that would make society more civilized and but the thing is he was he was essentially he, he was he still believed in dynastic monarchy essentially so he was like a proto liberal so he wasn't like he wasn't uh, he, this was before Locke, so but he believed in like property rights and stuff. But so he was like, yeah, that they should be able to, or the state should be able to use the full extent of its power in order to keep the peace. So, so it, it, he was very specific about the idea. But if you think about like his social contract theory, it was just like the raw concept of it. It's not really something that can necessarily be applied today, but it was a necessary step in order to proceed to Locke and then to like Jefferson and Mill and those guys. But so yeah, with, with Hobbes, it was about it, it state of nature is inherently violent and that's why you need a state. And then with Locke, it was more, um, people, it, it, he, he was kind of, he was a little vague when it came to the state of nature, but he was a, he was a little less cynical when it came to that. He was like, pe he thinks people are generally good or not necessarily good, but like the tabula rasa blank slate, not inherently evil, but, and then as people discover things and learn about like learn about the way things are, people will eventually come together and realize in order to constrain the forces of nature, we need to, form the social contract. So essentially the social contract is completely enforced in Hobbes's theory, whereas it is a mutual agreement in Locke's theory where essentially you have um, the people coming together and then they create a government and they say, they essentially legislate, their coming together is what legitimizes the state. So the state doesn't legitimize itself, but they legislate their own or they legislate power to an elite, to like an elected elite um, who will then protect them in turn. And so it's kind of a uh, symbiotic thing. So, yeah. So like, like I said, like, I think I think I see it as a lock more building off of Hobbes because there would have been no lock if there weren't a Hobbes. Now, Cotton, before we started recording, you were talking about you had a professor that was actually very Hobbesian. And... Uh, well, he, he was saying that uh, 
and he said this in his Locke uh, lecture, but he said that uh, trade cannot really happen in the state of nature because there's too much insecurity. So the argument for social contract is uh, to have the state that can make things more secure and can protect um, trade so that people can save money. And, uh, and that's why we need a government. And I was thinking, uh, I was holding my tongue at the time, but I'm thinking business began in the state of nature. Like it began without a central guiding force, uh, giving mandated insurance to those tradesmen. But then you have to, but then you also have to, because there are different theories about how the state forms. And I think they're both right to an extent, but there's the, the idea, there's like the Lockean view that it's essentially a social construct in terms of people deliberately end up creating the state. And then there's the Hobbesian view where it's completely organic, where slowly over time the state forms. Like it might, society might start out kind of like voluntary at first and there's really no government, but eventually an elite will rise and that will form the government. And that's actually my, my main criticism of, so I like the, as a thought experiment, I do like, look, Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism. However, I just, I know you guys definitely disagree with me here, but I just don't think it is feasible because in the absence of the state, what is there to stop? There's nothing to stop the state from forming. And it doesn't necessarily have to form in the same way that the state exists now. Like, uh, you had um, Max Weber, who defined, who said he defined the state as whatever institution has the monopoly on violence. So what if you have like a Acme Corporation or something um, starts, I don't know, like buying up all these other companies and ends up making or ends up um, essentially creating this giant like business corporate infrastructure. But even though it lo kind of looks like a, a normal business at first, it eventually starts to function like an oligarchy. And then they somehow control, they eventually end up controlling all of the business uh, in like a specific area. And it's like, is it even a company anymore? Or are we back to square one? And let's say like they start, they build like some kind of private defense force. I know this is like a very extreme example, but more of a hypothetical. I just think at this current level of civilization that we are at, there's nothing whatsoever to um, prevent some kind of state-ish type thing from forming whether it is in the form of like a government that we have or if it's in the form of some kind of like corporatist oligarchy, which isn't even capital, it wouldn't even be capitalism at that point. Um, or, uh, and then it, what gets me though, is like when you have, um, it's like anarcho syndicalists and ANCOMs saying, Oh yeah, no, um, everybody's just going to like be like vault, like be communist and stuff. And everyone's going to be happy and we can come together in communities, and that's not government. It's like, no, they're literally advocating. If they're advocating for democracy, they're advocating for government, because d democracy is inherently a system of government. So, 
So in response to uh, what you were saying about um, like a private corporation essentially becoming the state, I don't think that a society could become a liber like a, a, a libertarian utopia or, you know, not that that exists or will ever exist, but uh, like an ideal libertarian society without a majority of the people uh, having liberty as their primary value. And if that were the case, then Walmart would not be able to transition from a private corporation to a to a uh, state entity pseudo 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 state right probably. because because they're still um technically a corporation right and and they're still being affected by uh market dynamics so i don't know, i've always i've always liked the idea of the market and the state co like coexisting but to keep one another in check because the thing is the only like too much because like the thing is if you have too much democracy you destroy democracy and if you have i don't want to say too much capital but in a way if you have too much capitalism that can sometimes end up destroying capitalism too because like sometimes the worst enemies of capitalism are the capitalists. Look at the people who are like lobbying for regulations in order to prevent startup companies from forming and um, cornering the market, lobbying for monopoly rights, that whole thing. Like a Silicon Valley right now. In a way, so I consider myself essentially a quasi-fair capitalist um, as opposed to 100% like unregulated because I do think that could that may have the potential to lead to some negative externalities. And I just say that from a, almost like a realist perspective, because uh, and I, I guess I'm going to go a little Hobbesy in here right now, but uh, there are those people in life that are going to try to take power and use whatever kind of, um, whatever kind of agency that they have in order to screw over other people. Like there are always going to be those people in the world. And I feel like if there's, sort of nothing if there's no if there's there needs to be some kind of apparatus in order to prevent that from happening not necessarily to completely like regulate the uh mar or the marketplace but just to prevent people from like taking advantage of that sort of thing so i guess kind of like a friedman and hayek so i i'm definitely like my view is definitely not like rothbards but like kind of more like friedman and or hayek who are like yeah, like free market is good. However, you have to take into account that there are sometimes going to be unforeseen negative externalities. But I guess I'm like a I'm a little cynical when it comes to the future of um, the market and government and that sort of thing because like I, I almost feel like even if we work try to work towards kind of a freer society, I feel like at this point it's inevitable that we're going to that the lines between state and in corporate power the lines are going to start um they're going to start thinning it's going to start fading and then they'll essentially merge and then that'll lead to like essentially caesarism so where you have like these strongmen populists who are like really rich 
essentially and so like like sort of like um Julius Caesar or uh oh, the other guy in the triumvirate who ended up getting killed by the Persians. I forget what his name is. But but yeah, no, but um you, you're gonna end up getting those figures uh kind of rise up and it's essentially just gonna be the rule of money, but there's gonna be no distinction between that and the state. So like think of like what China's like right now, almost. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. Uh I do think one of the most important things is having guns. Uh because that changes things a little bit. But uh I don't necessarily disagree with your pessimistic view entirely. Um but back on the uh uh social contract topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about Rousseau? And his formula. Yeah, so Rousseau wrote a book, uh, literally called the Social Contract, and so it wasn't in the Hobbes Lockean tradition because, like I said, at least I view Locke as being sort of like an expansion pack to Hobbes, essentially. But yeah, but um, but the thing is, Rousseau took it in a completely radical direction. So he basically took the concept, but he made something entirely different, where. He essentially, so I mean, it was it was basically a sequel to his discourse on inequality, but he was almost so basically Rousseau was almost like a proto socialist. I mean, definitely was in a lot of ways. Yeah, but uh, yeah, in in, in our episode uh, about the origins of the state, I described him as a uh, anarcho syndicalist. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's probably a good description of him. I mean. Because the thing is, what's interesting is, so he considered himself, like, a classical liberal. But, I mean, I guess this is before, like, all of these schools of thought diverged. But, um, yet he was also, he kind of had a love-hate relationship with private property, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, yeah, yeah so, but his whole thing was essentially that um, he rejected, well, because, like, Lucy of Locke, who was for constitutional monarchy, and believe that there needs to be sort of a give and a take between the king, the parliaments, and um, and the people, and that's why he was the he was the he was the person who came up with the idea for a bicameral legislature and three branches of government. That's all Locke. And then Rousseau was like, no, he was more so like we need to essentially basically the concept of the uh, abolition of unjust hierarchy begins with Rousseau um, because he's like, we need to establish or abolish dynastic monarchy altogether. Well, not even dynastic monarchy, all kinds of monarchies. So, I mean, France at the time was a dynastic monarchy. Um, there was no, it wasn't a constitutional monarchy like, like the UK was, but um, so, I mean, it makes sense why he would be so against it, but his whole thing was, no divine right of kings and uh, divine right of kings is kind of stupid anyway, but he was like, no, get rid of the divine right of kings and the people themselves who are sovereign. Um, uh, only them, only they have the right to rule. So he, he was very utopian in that regard. So he was almost like, almost like a, the halfway point between Locke and Marx, I guess he'd be like, if, Locke and Marx had a baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I was uh reading his discourse recently and I was I I've never I have read the Communist Manifesto. 
I've never read any of Das Kapital, but no, that's a such it's a very Das Kapital. I don't know. I feel like Das Kapital is really pretentious. Yeah. I couldn't get through it. No, but honestly, okay, so I actually kind of like the Communist Manifesto. It's actually kind of fun to read, and I thank almost, you. It's thank fun to you. read. Like, like honest, like honestly, like he's like I mean. In theory, like in theory, what he says makes sense, but the thing is, in practice, it doesn't work. But that's why I don't like. I mean, I feel like people vilify Marx so much because it's, oh, he created communism. But the thing was, if Marx were alive today, he probably wouldn't be a communist because communism had not been tried. Therefore, they had no empirical like case study mm-hmm. to show that communism does not work, and. He was, a, he, was just, he was just coming up with an he just came up with an idea essentially. Yeah. Plus, like, I also get the point that like modern Marxists have never even read Marx. Yeah. Because the thing is, <laughs> they read it from no, Tumblr blogs, bro. No, because the thing is, like, Marx didn't even really hate capitalism. Like, there was an entire chapter where he was like praising the innovation that capitalism oh, yeah. brought. And then I think this is the biggest problem. Like when you have. Like the far left, and then you have like just all every, like every capitalist in general, which could be everywhere from cent- like left of center to Austrian school anarchists, just in general. But uh, the thing is, the uh, they use the word capitalism, like they always argue over capitalism, usually, like you see it on Twitter all the time, and it's just a shit show. But the thing is, I just realized the word capitalism gets lost in translation when they're having those arguments. Because the thing is, people like us, we mean something completely different when we say capitalism mm-hmm. than what the far left does. The far left, the thing is, how Marx defined capitalism, he did not define capitalism as a free market system. He defined capitalism in the same exact way as Adam Smith, who was an influence on Marx, he his definition of capitalism was the exact same thing as uh, Marx's definition of mercantilism. So, Marx uh, Marx was not criticizing economic liberalism. He was criticizing essentially, um, like, basically like the British East India Company type, type, quote unquote capitalism. Like you know what you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, he he was. It, it sounds like he's just more anti-fascist. Yeah, essentially. And he was also, I remember there was this, uh, it was kind of funny, I remember I was seeing a meme, and it was like, Marx, it was a picture of Marx next to a picture of Reagan, and it was a quote of Reagan advocating for gun control. And then it was a quote of Marx saying that uh, the individual needs to be able to arm himself against the elite if they come and attack. I'm like, that's, I'm like, I'm like, that's based. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, like, you said that Marx wasn't necessarily against capitalism. And that's true. He just saw like uh, socialism as the next step. You know, it wasn't necessarily that that uh, capitalism was like a wrong turn or something that like a lot of modern day Marxists think. But he just thinks it was it was another step along the way. He wasn't even calling for a revolution. He was just saying there's going to be a revolution. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah. But But uh, the reason I like the Communist Manifesto is because it's so honest. Or like, you know, now, nowadays communists will say, no, we don't want to get married. We don't want to get uh, get rid of religion. But in the Communist Manifesto, he outright says, you know, no religion, no marriage. And uh, it just gives you a very... Uh, Did he say no marriage? 
Pretty sure. Because on, but I've honestly, so I have a kind of a theory on Marx. I've actually always seen him as, well, with the exception of the religion aspect, I've actually always seen Marx as more of a reactionary than a revolutionary. Because if you notice, his main criticisms of capitalism have to do with how he thinks it breeds degeneracy, essentially, and how materialism breeds degeneracy, and about how he talks a lot about moral decay, essentially. Yeah, that's the and, Rousseauian influence there. Yeah, like, so, I mean, he was just, yeah. And so almost his whole thing was do a revolution in order to, because like, he wanted a tradition, like, um, a moralist, like puritanical society. And that's actually why I think in a lot of ways, Marxism is almost the secularization of Calvinism. Hmm. In a lot of ways. Because I mean, if you look at like the, the Puritans in 17th century England, um, like their whole thing, very egalitarian, like hyper egalitarian, um, very, uh, austere and that was essentially like what Marx wanted I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I could easily be uh, misremembering or thinking of something else but uh, I, I, have, I have gotten heat for praising the communist manifesto on this, on this podcast before for just saying how honest it is really yeah well uh, hey you know I, I I hang out with degenerates like Liberty Zero here. What do I expect? You know? <laughs> I didn't criticize you for that. Hmm. Okay. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, cri I criticize you for a lot, but that was not one of those things. Okay. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, so one more question and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, who do you think uh who do you think out of those three philosophers who do you think had the most realistic uh version of the social contract okay so in theory i like locks however as a realist i think hobbes's analysis of human nature makes more sense um but John Locke's app, like his application works better. Like John Locke's system works better, but Hobbes was more right in terms of like just basic analysis. Um, but I do think the one thing, like, I mean, I do think that the uh, state of nature is inherently violent, but not necessarily because everyone is terrible, a terrible person, but more so because you have those few terrible people who are just going to go and trample on everyone. And that's what makes it chaotic. But I feel that um, if there is going to be a social contract, it should be executed in the same way that Lux was uh, in order, because the thing is the one thing about like the one, like actually really positive aspect of democracy is that at least I mean, in theory, it is a way of keeping the elite accountable. I mean, maybe not so much these days, but um, in theory, that's that's what it is. Yeah, but um, 
but yeah, so, but I do think that uh, Locke was definitely right when it came to tabula rasa, blank slate, where um, we develop our worldviews and our morality based upon our observations as we're growing up, essentially. And we sort of come to these conclusions, like, basically, when you, if you see somebody murder somebody, and you witness that, you'll be like, oh, shit, that's bad. Like, I mean, that's kind of like a universal kind of concept. But, yeah. I will say, though, that... Actually, I'm going to ask you a question real quick. What are your guys' opinions on the French Revolution? On the on French the Revolution? Yeah. Uh, was it a success or was it a failure? Okay. I'll say I think it was a failure. Because it they weren't as uh organized as they could have been and it left room for strong men like napoleon to take control yeah so we where... had a, i think it was like like so you had robes robs pierre it was funny so like the basically the jacobins were basically just like originally they were basically ancaps without the nap yeah <laughs> and but then after that then they became like proto keynesians after they took charge and they completely invalidated their worldview because they were for like an egalitarian system but once they took over they became the new elite kind of like a i don't know if you guys have read james burnham uh his uh any of his works where he was a um former Trotskyist, and then he became, I think he became like a conservative, essentially, at, back in like the 50s. But yeah, he hasn't wrote about a lot of that stuff. But I think so, yeah, the French Revolution, in my opinion, is definitely a failure. But I think the one positive aspect it had is that it completely ended up delegitimizing the divine right of kings, not just in France, but all across Europe, because then people started saying, look what happened. This is complete bullshit. We need to reform. So I think at least the French Revolution ended up ended up um, prompting most of the other European polities at the time to at least create, like, a constitution, essentially. Yeah, what do you think, Zero? Well, I mean, it gave us the guillotine, so <laughs> it wasn't all bad. No, I mean, I am far from... Um, I'm far from an expert or even well-informed on the French Revolution, but just from everything I've heard, I tend to agree with the two of you. Um, the the focus on egalitarianism that you see, like I definitely uh, you know disagree with that, uh, and yeah, just you, you really can't go around killing everyone that uh you don't like that's <laughs> not a yeah. that's not a good way to structure a society here. and I, I don't usually like talking like this but i think part of the problem was with the french revolution was the french because they're the, just the french and like kind of sucked yeah like the in their character one, they're just the only good utopian one, i like montesquieu and voltaire that's it the rest of them suck. yeah I like uh, Voltaire is one of my favorites. I really like Voltaire. Yeah, because uh, in a lot of ways, Voltaire and Montesquieu, even though they're part of the uh, French Enlightenment, in terms of what their beliefs, they're a lot closer to the English Enlightenment. Yeah, I, I don't know that much about Montesquieu, but I know 
uh, Voltaire spent quite a bit of time in uh, England during the Great Revolution. Oh, yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah, and then, um, but yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, French Revolution, total shit show. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, like, I, I was reading uh, Edmund Burke. I'd never read Burke before, and he was like making really good arguments like about how there are certain institutions that are inherently fundamental for civilization to properly function and like there are just some some things that you cannot destroy because some institutions are the pillars of society and so that's why i think reformation and incrementalism just works a lot better than revolution yeah yeah i think once you get rid of marriage and religion everything's to hell yeah it's a uh, in a lot or in a lot of ways so like i mean i think that um i don't think that necessarily you have to be like religious to be moral but i do kind of understand that a lot of the our moral conceptions do primordially derive from a religious tradition so like in a lot of ways you see like um so i i've, ne I've never I, I so i used to see the light as a revolt against religion and the creation of this new ideal, like this new, new kind of like, like literal ideal. Um, but after reading some stuff more, like just reading more stuff over time, I've actually come to the conclusion that it was the rash, it was the rationalization of the Christian feeling of progress, because you have the concept of progress, which is essentially rooted in Christianity and the enlightenment. They took that and then they just made it, they rationalized it and it became secular. It became secularized. So it was the same values, but without the theology. But then you started having people started attacking the enlightenment. And in a way, that's also, that's pretty much the same thing as attacking the religious foundation too, because the enlightenment is the actualization of the, um, of religion's influence in a lot of ways. You you cut out quite a bit there, but uh, what I caught was that the Enlightenment was not necessarily an attack against Christianity or religion. It wasn't a revolt. It was, yeah, not even with Rousseau, because Rousseau like, converted to Catholicism, I remember. But, um, but you yeah, know, so I've never seen the Enlightenment as a revolt against, or I, I used to, actually. But mm. after doing some reading and really looking more into it, I've come to the conclusion that it was actually more of the um it was the fulfillment of religion in a lot of ways it was the rationalization of the christian feeling of progress in a lot of ways is like the concept of progress is inherently rooted within like the christian theology initially like the concept of progress is an inherently western concept um but so yeah in a lot of ways religion evolved and then the enlightenment came about but then you started you have people like these days now who are attacking the values of the enlightenment and in a lot of ways that it's like that's the same thing as essentially attacking the values of like certain religious values because the enlightenment was essentially just the secularization of those same religious values because it all derived from that so yeah i don't disagree with you this would be a good book topic yeah, I'm actually, I, I am, so I do talk about this in the book that I'm writing right now, um, about just, like, I'm writing a book right now about, like, social cycles and 
the rise and fall of different like cultures throughout human history, essentially, and about how similar things happen. But I, I, that's I, that is something for another day. That is a completely different topic. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up. Why don't you plug anything you want to plug right now? So if yeah, if you you guys want to uh, want to follow me on social media, I am the Politocrat. Um, I had my old account, which had like 2K followers, but I ended up getting banned for insulting the um, the foreign minister or something of the People's Republic of China. Um, so, uh, yeah, so now it's not the Politocrat on Twitter. Now it is the P-O capital I. Uh, or, yeah, I. T-I something, something, something. There's a the Politocrat. Uh, I have no idea why I can't spell it right now. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. But um, but yeah. So yeah, that would be yeah. P O yeah P O capital I. Uh, or then I again. Uh O. I mean T O C R O T. On this episode of dissecting liberty, we tried desperately to spell. Yes. <laughs> I I'm probably better at grammar than I am at spelling. Here, me too. I'm the exact same way. Spelling is hard, and <laughs> we'll we'll link all of that to the uh, show notes. All right, man. We appreciated you coming on and uh, having this discussion with us. Yeah, I enjoy. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me back on. All right. Well, wrapping it up, I am Liberty Zero, reminding you to zero your rifle, and I'm Cotton Arcus, reminding you to pick your cotton voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs>